Welcome to the Jewish Kaleidoscope, conversations that offers a different perspective on the issues of our day. Hosted by Rabbi Michael Siegel, Senior Rabbi of the Anshe Emmet Synagogue in Chicago. In this podcast, he will be discussing medical ethics in an age of pandemic with Dr. Ricardo Rosencrantz of Northwestern Hospital. It's our pleasure to talk with Dr. Ricardo Rosencrantz, who is both a member of Anshe Emmet, a magician of some note, and a physician who does remarkable work. So, Ricardo, welcome. Thank you so much. Delighted to be here. Glad to have you as well. I want to just tell our listeners a little bit about you. Originally uh, born in Mexico, but studied at Stanford, went to the Cornell Medical School, and did your residency in pediatrics here at Northwestern, which is now Lurie Hospital, did fellowship in neonatal perinatal medicine. And uh, you presently serve as assistant professor in clinical pediatrics at the Feinberg School of Medicine at Northwestern. And more pertinent to our conversation today, you teach clinical ethics for first and second year medical students at the Feinberg School of Medicine since 2007. And you have also won a number of prestigious teaching awards for your thoughtful and creative uh, teaching methods. You are currently chairman of the board of Hospi Inc., a medical device company focused on palliative care technology. And from 1998 to 2015, you were the CEO of InnovaMed, a healthcare system in Mexico comprised of hospitals, outpatient clinics, diagnostic laboratories, and imaging centers. I'm not exactly sure how you have time to breathe. You do so many different <laughs> things, but um, it's a pleasure. Today, we're going to talk about medical ethics, and hopefully we'll be able to focus on ethics in the time of the coronavirus as well. But before we get there, would you talk for just a minute about the clinical ethics courses that you teach presently at the Feinberg School of Medicine? And what kinds of conversations are you having with uh, doctors in the um, educational part of their career? Yes, well, thank you. First of all, I'm delighted to be here. Thank you so much for having me. So it's my great pleasure. And this is one of those topics that um, has always seemed relevant to me and uh, is particularly more relevant right now. I was I was invited, even though I've been a uh, faculty member at Northwestern since um, I finished my residency in 93, most of my activity was at Lurie at Children's. And in 2007, I was invited to participate in the medical student educational experience. And I, I found that so delightful and, and exciting to be working with first year through fourth year medical students that I, I ended up um, involving myself a lot. And I've, I've taught a lot of classes in that context and in that world. Now, I'm not the only person and I'm certainly not the course director for the ethics track. Um, essential model is that, uh, the students gain a lot of the information by reading and by learning a basic curriculum from some of the directors, but also a lot of the work is done in small group sessions where we look at cases, where we talk about different types of situations and we, we also give them prompts for reflection and, and for writing. One of the nice things about the Feinberg School is that the humanities are very integrated into the curriculum. So ethics is, is discussed uh, on all four years of medical school and in many ways direct and, and tangential. 
Currently, for example, the way we teach, the way I interact with first-year and second-year medical students is in the course called Ethics in Action. And Ethics in Action deals with specific topics, but they're tasked to go out and since they're involved with clinical medicine from the very first day, we want them to bring their cases so that we can discuss those cases within a certain context. It makes it very real for them. So... What kinds of issues do you talk about? Well, so for example, we had a class last week and that class, uh, the topic was, this was for first year medical students and the topic was surrogate decision making. In a small group session with 10 students, what's really interesting is that they will bring a lot of different topics within different experiences or situations within that topic. So for example, in this particular one of surrogate decision making, we had a couple of students that were discussing cases where there were patients with dementia and how their children or other caregivers were becoming more involved in the decision making. Another student who's doing a, a pediatrics rotation spoke about a teenager and the emergence of autonomy in, in a teenager vis-a-vis his or her parents. So the exciting thing is that we can look at a topic from many different perspectives that is relevant to the students in their daily life. It's interesting. Do you give them a roadmap to kind of think about or a framework to kind of make decisions from an ethical perspective? Well, sure. In general... In the world of medicine, the model of ethics that we have ubiquitously, and by ubiquitously, I mean not just in the U.S., but mainly in the U.S., ubiquitously adopted, is a, the concept of principalism, which basically means that, and this is because this is applied ethics, so moral dilemmas are, are examined based on their application to certain ethical principles. The principles are given a weight. They're given a, not so much a score, but a sort of, of an importance. In the U.S., basically in the 1970s, there was a famous document called the Belmont Report. That sort of was the beginning of this main concept. So the four broad principles, and this is as opposed to other types of ethical structures like virtue ethics or to throw in a big term, deontology. Which means? Deontology basically is sort of obligation or rule-based ethics, duty-based ethics. Mm. So a deontological ethic model is what are, uh, what are our duties or obligations. Principalism is just a little easier to understand and a little easier to approach, not as grandiose in a sense. The, the four principles of ethics that we tend to use are respect for autonomy, which basically talks about the capacity of an individual to make decisions for themselves. Beneficence, which is the obligation to act for the benefit of others, for the benefit of patients. Non-malfeasance, comes all the way from the Hippocratic times, requires to refrain from causing any deliberate harm. And then, of course, justice, which requires that what we do is, is fairly distributed. How much weight do medical schools place on ethics in our day? I think that significantly, more more so perhaps than you'd expect, I think that what has happened in terms of the humanities, in terms of bioethics, is that the last 20 years have brought some fascinating challenges, interesting questions that are raised. I think that this generation of doctors, I love to teach medical students. It makes me very optimistic in many ways. This generation of doctors is more interested in self-examination. Mm -hmm. is more interested in understanding why they do the things they do. Giving them this particular structure, which is a widely regarded professional structure, is good. And in places like ours, where we make it 
truly relevant to their daily life. So, you know, in this particular last session on surrogacy, my job really is to give them some best practices, you know. So one student, for example, points out that in one of the conversations, uh, there was a patient and, and the patient's daughter the patient was not English speaking and the daughter was, and the doctor never even looked at the patient. The doctor just kept looking at the daughter. Mm. So the student raised this question and I said, well, the question you have to be asking yourself is, is this person really autonomous? Because health literacy or language literacy are not reasons to make someone not be autonomous. Is the child a translator or is it the child a surrogate decision maker? This is a question you need to ask yourself. And sometimes as physicians, we might not go there. So that's the nuance that they learn and they love it. And they understand that that's how they can be a better doctor. Well, as you know, Judaism also has an entire literature on ethics of every kind, including medical ethics, which is fascinating in its own way. At the same time, medicine was the most inexact of sciences until the invention of penicillin. The rabbis are very wary of physicians because their ability to cure was pretty limited. And it was a world in which, you know, bloodletting and quarantine were the primary sources of medical knowledge and basis yes. for medical knowledge. And yet we do look at ancient texts and try and learn about how do we deal with resources? How do we approach end of life issues? How do we balance the needs of a community, uh, and the command to heal and the value of human life. All of these issues are very much part of the Jewish ethical framework. And I'm quite sure part of your conversations with medical students. And one of the great privileges of teaching is that you get to talk about theory. But now in an age of pandemic, we're living in an age where People are making ethical decisions in the situation, in the moment, that we're living in, in an age of situational ethics. And doctors and nurses are trying to make decisions. And I'm just wondering, how do you manage a ethical framework in a time of pandemic? You know, that's a very good question. And I'm glad, by the way, I, I'm glad, I'm glad I can answer, ask the question and not be forced to answer it because I've, it, it is a really hard it question. Is. It is brutal. So let me just make two little disclaimers. The first disclaimer that I want to make is that I think that all of the people who are working on this topic are faced with very difficult questions and, and the intentions, the intentions are great. This is one of those situations where I truly believe that there, there are differences of opinion, but the difference of opinions just stem from interpretation, not, not from personal gain. And secondly, that I am fortunate enough, in a sense, that I'm not in the front line in this. I'm an educator. I trained as a neonatologist. I saw patients for a long time. I don't see patients anymore. So I'm not in that world. The common wisdom is that in a time of pandemic, and this has been discussed multiply and has been, believe it or not, there are all sorts of pandemic plans. It might seem like there weren't, but there are all sorts of pandemic plans uh, that were written by all sorts of entities from states to cities to federal governments everywhere in the world. The overwhelming idea is that during a time of pandemic, the principles get ranked differently. In the United States, we very frequently put autonomy ahead of everything else. In fact, one of the main differences ethically between the United States and other countries in Europe is the fact that autonomy tends to often be the top principle. 
and people get to decide what they want. So it is no surprise that in a time of pandemic, we need to switch to prioritizing justice, which talks about fairness and a fair distribution of resources. Because in a pandemic, resource allocation seems to be one of the bigger problems. And we sort of switched to a public health point of view. In fact, one of the top writers in clinical decision-making, ethical decision-making, who actually writes a textbook that we use, his name is Bernard Lowe. He says, the physician's primary responsibility in such emergencies is to the public rather than to the individual patient. In public health emergencies, physicians need to address the patient's needs and concerns, but recognize their change roles and work closely with public health officials. So we, our patient changes in theory and in practice, our patient becomes a community, not so much so the individual. And the autonomy really moves very far down. In fact, it, it, it tends to move to the last place where you go to justice, beneficence and non-malfeasance and all the way down to autonomy at the end. So in a way, some of the issues that were already on the table in American society is medical care a right if the larger concern of the society is on economics or capitalism, right? There's a, there's a real debate going on as to Absolutely. Where, where does healthcare fall in and where, where do the needs of the individual balance with, with the larger needs of the, of the society? All of this has become supercharged in the age of COVID-19. How do we manage that? And by the way, this this conversation is going on in a society where people are now protesting that they want to go back to work or they want their freedoms, they want their autonomy back, and what is in the best interest of the larger society. And there is a very spirited, and I'm afraid uh, a very, very challenging debate going on, and that's taking place in hospitals as well. Right now, as people are getting care, I'm looking to you as an ethicist to talk about that. What's going on inside of hospitals as we look at the pandemic? It's fascinating and gut-wrenching in many different regards. I think there are two broad issues. Let me deal with the first one, which is allocation of resources. Because the autonomy for someone to go back to work, while it is very important and indeed is, is, is the one thing that we're probably going to see itself played out more than anything else, the decision about who gets a ventilator is probably one of the most dramatic ones. So how does our profession deal with this? Most hospitals in the U.S. first realized how complicated this was going to be when they started getting the, the Italian experience. I have a friend who is an ER doctor in the Seattle area, and he and I spoke as the illness was starting to hit Seattle harshly. And he basically said to me, I'm going to have to send a lot of people home based on very utilitarian decisions. He said in a lot of hospitals in Italy, the story was as simple as this. If you are 60 or over and you have diabetes, or you have high blood pressure, you're not going to get a ventilator. That was a very, very basic structure. Now, we had more time here in the U.S. to start thinking about that. And I participated in, as an observer, in several roundtable discussions on this topic. I was frankly very alarmed at how quickly we became utilitarian. You know, there's a utilitarian model that talks about the great, the greater happiness of society started very popular in the 19th century. Mills was one of those ethicists who uh, was a proponent of it. Very quickly, I saw very well-intentioned doctors start saying, well, 
you know, the way we're going to approach this is going to be by, and then there were several strategies. Alarmingly, these strategies were not just about age. So they were ageist. Some of these strategies were about saving the most life years. What is somebody's potential survival rate at five years or longer? But some of them actually include scoring systems, such as a, a scoring system called SOFA, which is a scoring system for Alzheimer's, that basically assumed that if you had a certain numerical value, certain score, notice there's an economy at play. There's numbers. That if you have a certain score, you are automatically disqualified. Well, let me give you an example that would be terribly alarming to me. You are in an emergency room and you have a 30-year-old. Let's just say a 30-year-old who codes, not that I want to say anything bad about any person, a single 30-year-old male who is a coder, and a 63-year-old woman who is obese and has diabetes and has 12 grandchildren. Just by a very simple numerical score, he might get the ventilator. Nobody might want to ask the question that is pregnantly sitting there, which is that the 63-year-old grandmother of 12 grandchildren is actually financially supporting a lot of them. So how, and right, and so this pandemic is exposing our value system or our lack of a value system, who we value and who are not being valued, which really flies in the face of Jewish ethical concerns, which speaks about the equality of all people, the notion that life and death are really in God's hands and which is a reminder to every person that every human life has value, which in a way we are, we are losing that idea in a society that seems to value celebrities and uh, athletes and things of that nature more than the common person in a society where the wealthy are treated in a different way or can buy their way into a, uh, into different care. And in a sense, our society is sort of is weighting things in those directions in a way that I think is alarming. It is very alarming. Um, one of the things that I'm very proud of what Illinois is doing is Illinois was the first state that actually dared to disclose the fact that the racial disparities in COVID were enormous. Early on in this process, when people in, in Northern California were being asked to disclose that information, where health uh, officials in Northern California were being asked to disclose that in information, Santa Clara County, for example, the answer was a very convenient, HIPAA does not allow us to disclose any information, which basically belied the fact that in some of these communities, the real problem, as we have seen in Illinois, is the fact that certain communities that are already at risk we're even more so at risk. And by not wanting to do that, you're putting more people at risk because the resources aren't being delivered where they need to be delivered. There's a very intense discussion right now going, and I know this from several colleagues, that is pressuring the large healthcare organizations to not just function around their own network of hospitals, but for example, now with telemedicine, an intensivist at an institution like mine could sit in front of a computer and help uh, an intensivist in a tiny rural hospital, but let's not even say rural hospital, a hospital within with, within an urban uh, setting that is more focused on taking care of people at risk. And that resource is also considered limited. And not all of the networks are giving doctors the green light to be able to help some of those facilities that are taking care of people at risk. 
So even there, there is a unintended rationing of services. The other, I think, very, very difficult part of the story is I was surprised that five weeks ago that there were significant numbers of physicians in ICU settings who, in trying to create a scoring system, were leaving out people with disabilities. I was in a very poignant Zoom session where someone who was a disability advocate said that cystic fibrosis patients that she knew were told by their physicians, don't even try to, in New York, don't even try to go in. There's no ventilator for you. Speaking to a couple of other colleagues, I think what's happened is that it is thanks to these very loud voices that our profession has learned a lot in the last five weeks. And that some of these committees that are creating models for their own institution have come a long way. Part of me says, I'm so happy that we are able to have this discourse. Part of me says, I'm so sad that we, that some people fail to see this to begin with. And part of me is alarmed that there are a lot of voices that are not being heard and might be left out of the table. A, tra a transactional society is going to be bereft of an ethical approach. And the reality is, is that there is a reckoning that's taking place right now. But after the post-pandemic age, there's also going to be a reckoning to consider what did we do to get into the situation and how are we going to make corrections going forward for our purpose of our conversation in an ethical framework? So what do you believe are the main challenges moving forward? What issues do you think need to be addressed as we go forward? I mean, I'll tell you that, first of all, the good news for most locations in the United States is we have managed to flatten the curve in some ways that have allowed us to not have to make these decisions. I can tell you that as of today at my institution at Northwestern, no one's been denied a ventilator because there's been ventilators. So the best solution there is not to ha ever have to ration services there. But there are two areas that I, I feel are the areas that we need to reckon with in the future. My main topic of interest right now is twofold. A, the abrogation of the rights of the people who are dying. So we've all seen and heard of patients who are dying with COVID in isolation. And that is a fact, and that is happening everywhere. And it's not that institutions are unfeeling or uncaring. In, in the name of ethics, a lot of them are creating policies. These policies, I think, are very unjust. And I think that they're, they don't stem from ethics. They stem from operational difficulty. I just don't think that we are giving the importance to the rights of the individual who's dying. And in bringing this to, to a Jewish world, one of my favorite Jewish philosophers of the 20th century, Levinas, he spoke about the face-to-face -face encounter and our responsibility our responsibility to the person who is in front of us. It's so easy when you go into this public health mode because there isn't a face. There is a face, and healthcare providers see this face, and we want to do something for this face. But in this area of the patient who is dying, that is happening. So rationing resources is not a, a huge issue right now, but the rights of the dying to have a dignified and non-isolated death it takes us back to what where we began, which was a conversation about focusing on the community over the needs of the individual. And there's a real-time disparity as to the value of a human life and the feelings of a person and how we are in the process of trying to heal devaluing individuals.
in our society and people are dying alone. Their loved ones can't be with them. There's no human touch and they're simply dying on a table somewhere and then they're being warehoused so essentially, in a morgue. What is happening and today what does that say about our society and what we'll go about? Patient who's in this isolation is, is nearing death, whether they're in the ICU or in a regular floor, there is no real policy in terms of family members, uh, dispensations being made for family members. The policy is no one goes in no matter what. And very frequently, the charge nurse um, is just given the opportunity to say, well, you know, if things are calm there, you're allowed to let them in. Well, that's terrible, if you ask me, because that's not really a policy. And really, that's not ethics-based. Well, it's actually, it's, 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 situ it's situational ethics. You know, in that situation, if you can do it, okay. But there's no overriding ethic that is leading people forward. It's all kind of in the moment. You know? It's exceptionalism at best might be transactional and at worst really has to do with the individual because sometimes it's not the chargers. Sometimes it's an administrator who's sleeping in their house and has really no con connectivity with this patient. It's a faceless, nameless person. So what, what I'm advocating for in this particular topic moving forward is we really have to revisit the idea of what are the rights to a dying individual even in this situation, and how do we operationalize it and make it something that gives us the best possible solution for that person and not the most practical solution for that person? Look, as you, as you speak, I'm thinking of the irony, the bitter irony, that a person will, uh, in Jewish law, will pass, and the Hevra Kedisha will care for them and honor the dead in some ways more than the person was honored at the end of their life. And that is a, a really a, a terrible, terrible statement about our society today. So looking forward, I guess what I would underscore in here is the notion that going forward, we're going to have to take a long, hard look in our society at ethics. And I also think the role of religion in our society, because if a religion doesn't teach an ethical framework, then it's not really a true religious tradition. And the need to study and to think about the value of human life, what are the ethical concerns in medicine, and what can ancient traditions teach us about the value of human life, and how do we go forward? And I think your work, I think the singular importance of your work, is uh, is going to be heightened as we go forward, or, or should be. Well, I hope so. Um, we have many challenges ahead. We have to make sure that um, it's not just about ventilators, but about patients who are now displaced because of COVID-19 and their voice. There are a lot of voices that were not heard in the early stages of this process, and we have to learn from that and operationalize things so that they work better for everyone. Dr. Ricardo Rosecrans, we thank you for making the time to talk to us, um, and I want to thank you on behalf of all of us for the important work you're doing. and the manner in which you're making a difference, not only with young medical students, but also in the ethical world of, of ethics and medicine. That's a great gift to all of us. Thank you. Thanks for being with us.